All right, well, last week we launched a sermon series through the beginning parts of the book of Revelation that we're calling The Patient Kingdom. And uh, we saw that as the Apostle John, who's the author of this letter, begins this letter to Jesus' church back then and today, he assumes three things will be the normal, everyday experience of followers of Jesus in this world. In fact, I don't know if I put this guys at the back table in the, uh, in the thing, but could you just pull up verse 9 and leave it up on the screen for a little while? Um, he writes this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. These are the three things that John assumes will be true of every Christian all the time, always. Tribulation, kingdom, and patience. Patient endurance. So he says this, to be a Christian is to experience trouble. This is what tribulation means, okay? This is, he's just channeling Jesus here. Jesus says in John 16, in the world you will have trouble, but take courage. I've overcome the world, right? Jesus also says, take up your cross, this instrument of execution, and follow me. Jesus also says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. To walk the way of Jesus often means walking the path of Jesus, and the path of Jesus very often includes difficulty. Um, Very often, not always, but of course very often, um, hardship means that you are following in the footsteps of your king. I think this is something as like modern day Christians in America whose life is pretty smooth. Um, we, We don't always internalize this very well. Difficulty does not mean that you're out of step with God necessarily. Okay, suffering is not a sign that you're lacking faith or harboring secret sin necessarily. It doesn't mean you need a demon cast out of your life necessarily. Okay, very often the path of Jesus is the path of difficulty. So John's saying, expect it. Okay, this is normal. This is the norm. Number two, though, he says that's only one of the expectations. Here's the next one. John is also a partner with the churches and with you and I in what he calls the kingdom. God's kingdom, the reign of Jesus over all things, is very near to us right now. And, and, though our Savior, and through our Savior Jesus, we are citizens of this kingdom, we're included in his family, and our king is coming, and he's very close. In verse 3, we didn't read it today, but last week, it said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So if I ask you to read a passage during this series, you have to say yes, okay? Um, And blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written. Why? For the time is near. Jesus is close. And what I think, and one of the things we said last week is I think emotionally, we often have a great distance, a big gap between the trouble in this world and the kingdom that is to come, right? We think like, oh, this world is the time for difficulty and trouble. The kingdom is the time when everything will be made right. But what the revelation is forcing us to see is that these two things are much, much closer than we thought. In fact, they're right on top of each other. The kingdom of God is here. He's active. He's extending his grace and his love and his hope. And um, it's separated by the thinnest veil. Expect this too. Yes, being a Christian means difficulty, but yes, being a Christian means expecting to see the kingdom of God at work in the world. Which leads to the third thing that Pastor John says every person following Jesus in this world should expect patient endurance. All right? We live in a world of difficulty, but we believe in a real kingdom 
of joy and hope and healing and grace and vibrant flourishing in our inner lives and vibrant flourishing in our relational lives and forgiveness and love. And we believe all of that is literally right here and it's growing wider and deeper every day. And the defining posture and spirit of a Christian living between these two worlds, living in both of these worlds at the same time, John tells us in verse nine, is patience, a patient endurance. It's interesting. The early church that received this letter from John almost directly understood this intuitively and is, they were far better at patient endurance than we tend to be today result-oriented, you know, Western civilization. Um, there's a book by a guy named um, Alan Crater, and it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And in this book, he sets out to basically answer the question, like, why in the world did the early church grow? Like, in the first three centuries, if you become a Christian, you are not opting for less suffering, but for more suffering, okay? This is the time of the Roman persecution. You were marginalized in society. You were persecuted and sometimes even executed. Why did anybody, anybody sign up for this gig, all right? This is the question he sets out to answer. Lots of historians have addressed this, but Alan, in his book, gives sort of a unique contribution, a unique angle to this. And uh, he says that one of the key elements to the early growth of the church was patience. All right, so listen, listen to this. He says, patience was not a virtue dear to most Greco-Roman people, but it was centrally important to the early Christians. This was the first virtue about which they wrote a treatise. Okay, so here I'm not about how to grow a church. That's not the first book they wrote. The first book they wrote was not atonement theory. The first book they wrote was not apologetics. It was how to be patient, okay? Uh, and then he goes on, he says, Christians, Christian writers called patience the highest virtue, the greatest of all virtues, the virtue that was peculiarly Christian. The Christians believed that God is patient and that Jesus visibly embodied patience, and, and they concluded that they, trusting in God, should be patient, not controlling events, not anxious or in a hurry, and never using force to achieve their ends. He says, as we ponder patience, we will come closer to understanding the resilience and the distinctive lifestyle of the early Christians that led to their growth in numbers. In the ancient world, in a frantic, anxious world filled with trouble, patient endurance is compellingly different. It was true then, and it's true today. We serve a patient king and are citizens of his patient kingdom. This is the normal life, according to the book of Revelation. So the question for, um, that, that the rest of the book of Revelation answers and the question that we're addressing in this series as we march through it is simply this. How do we grow in patient endurance, in the patient endurance required to live as citizens of heaven in a world full of trouble? How do we inhabit both of these worlds at the same time with the kind of long-term eternal view that actually brings rest and peace and patience to our lives? What needs to happen to us and what will it take for that to happen? And as we mentioned last week, the thing that we need more than anything else is not actually an adjustment in our situation, a change in our circumstances. Instead, 
Uh, John, in the Revelation, says we need to see more. We need to what? We need to see more. No, no, no. That can't be right. I need this frustration or difficulty or suffering fixed ASAP. And John says, no, no. You need to see more. There is far more to reality than to what your ears and eyes and fingers and logic can pick up on just in this world. The kingdom is very near, but all we see is the trouble. And so more than anything, we need an apocalypse. We need a revelation. We need an unveiling. We need to see the truth, the spiritual truth of what God is up to so that we can experience deeper spiritual reality. Jesus, when he instructs John in this passage, says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then John turned to see the voice that was speaking to him, and on turning, he saw. This is all about what we can see. My favorite commentator on the book of Revelation is a guy named Daryl Johnson. I will quote him relentlessly in this series. He writes this, no other book helps us see Jesus as he is right now as clearly and compellingly as the last book that John wrote. No other book helps us see him in a way that overcomes our fear and frees us into a life of radical faith. This is what he's saying. The revelation is a picture book, all right? The outlines that, of, of the doctrine and the outlines of the promises of God and the outlines of what Jesus has done for us have all been drawn in the previous 64 books of 65 books of the Bible. Um, and then Revelation colors it in, okay? Revelation's a picture book. John takes out his palettes of paint and he says, you're not gonna learn anything new here, but you're going to experience what we already know in a new way. So Eugene Peterson says, I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. That's what this book is for, all right? Um, David Brooks, who is a columnist for the New York Times, one time wrote at one of his pieces um, about the art of a guy named Makoto Fujimara, um, who friends of his call him Mako. I've never met him, but I can't, I'm going to stick with Mako. Um, so this is what David Brooks writes about Mako's art. He says, Fujimara's paintings are gorgeous works of abstract expressionism. Using a Japanese style called Nihonga, he grinds colored minerals like malachite and azurite into fine particles, and then he layers them on paper. Each layer takes time to dry, and Mako may use 60 layers in a single work. Nihonga is slow to make and slow to see. It's, it's patient art. Okay? Once Mako, uh, Mako once advised me, David writes, to, to stare at one of his paintings for 10 to 12 minutes. I thought it was going to be boring, but it was astonishing. As I stood still in front of it, my eyes adjusted to the work. What had seemed like a plain blue field now looked like a galaxy of color. A beautiful thing though simple in its immediate presence, always gives us a sense of depth below depth, almost an innocent, wild vertigo as one falls through its levels. Okay, so the book of Revelation is not a book, I'm gonna argue, primarily to be decoded or deciphered or charted. It's not merely a political roadmap to the end of the world. It is a story that's intended to carry our imagination and our desire deeper into layers and deeper into the experience and the reality of what God is doing in the world. We need to fall through the levels and encounter Jesus in deeper ways.
It asks us to wait long enough with Jesus to slow down, to stare into his heart, into his word, until our eyes adjust to his work and we begin to see and experience the presence of Jesus in our lives. Revelation gives us a sense of spiritual depth below depth, almost a wild vertigo, we could say. And the whole premise of this letter, this apocalypse, is that the thing we need more than anything else is not actually better circumstances, not more money or more time, not even more understanding or more data or more information about Jesus. We just need more Jesus, okay? That's the premise of the whole book. And that is how we will grow in a spirit and a posture of patient endurance as we live between these two worlds. So it is fitting that the book launches with a vision of Jesus that is unparalleled in all of Scripture, all right? Uh, In verses 12 through 16, we get Jesus Christ in IMAX 3D. I mean, the the lines have been drawn for us in the rest of the Bible, and then John fills it in with color that makes it pop in a way it doesn't anywhere else in the Bible. And so what I want to invite you to do is what Mako invited David to do while he was staring at his paintings. Let's stare at this for 10 to 12 minutes and see what layers of depths we can see about Jesus as we look at this vision that was given to his church for this reason. All right? So first, look where Jesus is standing right now. Verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Uh, In verse 20, at the end of this passage, Jesus tells us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this is a symbolism for, for the churches that John is writing to, but it also stands in for all churches everywhere. The number seven in the book of Revelation often means completion and wholeness. So John is writing to seven literal churches, but he's writing to the church for all time the complete people of God. If you're a believer, you're included in this picture, okay? You you made it in the vision. You're in the book of Revelation. This is you. And it tells us that Jesus stands right here in the midst of his family. Jesus is not unaware of your circumstances, whatever they are. He's near you in all of them, whatever you're going through. He's with us. He, he, he's with his Ukrainian brothers and sisters right now, whatever they're going through. Jesus is God Emmanuel. He's with us. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there also. And this is a vision of Jesus that we need to experience in deeper ways. He loves being with you, and you are never alone. He is in our midst. And after we see where Jesus is, He shows us what he does while he's with us. Verse 13. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Um, Okay, so clothing always makes a statement. Uh, Whether you want to make a statement or not, when you put something on in the morning, you are portraying yourself to the world in some specific way. So knowing that I was going to talk about fashion this week in our sermon, at our staff meeting, I asked everybody, let's all commentate 
on what everybody else is wearing and what it tells us about them, okay? It was a wonderful little discussion. So um, Ellen, of course, gets up in the morning and she gets dressed and she is communicating something about herself, consciously or unconsciously. She is competent, she is stylish, she is put together, she is professional, because that's how she dresses, right? And it just reflects her character in her clothing. Annie is like Sporty Spice 2.0, okay? She's fun, she's athletic, she's peppy. Hey, and she can even sing, right? Um, and Tom, Tom's rocking like the artist vibe, you know, um, with a little international influence and, and kind of strong notes of like the 70s California Jesus hippie um, that he was at one point, scarf included, you know? So like all of this comes through in what we wear. So then we got to me and we're like, what does it mean that Luke just has seven versions of the exact same blue checkered shirt that he wears literally every time. And we just kind of sat in silence and no one had any idea, so we moved on quickly. Our clothing communicates value. It communicates characteristics. What do we learn about Jesus from what he puts on in this vision, from his fashion choices? When he goes to the closet in the morning and he pulls out a robe and a golden sash, what does that tell us about his heart? This robe is a priest's robe. A priest represents God to the people and represents the people to God. A priest is a bridge between these two worlds, the world of trouble and the world of the kingdom. Jesus is at home on the heavenly side because he's fully God. And he is at home on the earthly side because he is fully man. And he is the only one who can bridge the gap in our lives between what we know we were designed for, heaven, a relationship with God, but the reality that we live through, sin, pain, brokenness, darkness. Jesus is the link that can bridge what our hearts need to be bridged. He's our only door into heaven, and he wears the robe to show it. And the golden belt, well, this is the heavyweight world title before Muhammad Ali and before Joe Frazier even walked into the ring, right? Jesus takes his golden belt, he slings it around his shoulder because he's the champion and the victor over sin and Satan and death, and he's already won. He's already crowned champion. He wears, he, he wears it because the work is done. He's achieved what we couldn't, he's fought the enemies we couldn't, and he's emerged victorious. The title belongs to him, and yet he graciously gives us the benefits of his victory. The wealth of his wins are our wealth. That's quite a statement with clothing, right? I don't know what blue checkered shirts say, but we know that Jesus reigns as our priest and champion and all the benefits of his work come pouring into the lives of his people. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. You can just hear John sort of grasping for the words. It's like this. It's not quite this, but it's like snow. It's like wool. Um, hair like wool and snow. Jesus is crowned with ancient wisdom, okay? He, he is the ancient one, and he is wisdom itself, and he's pure like snow. His eyes are like um, fire piercing through the fog. He knows all things. He sees every part of you. Nothing is hidden from him. But not only that, the same fire that can penetrate the fog and see through everything is the fire that, that purifies and the fire that cleanses, right? 
So Jesus, catch this, it sees into the inner recesses of your heart and your mind. He knows, he knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. We think we know ourselves, but there are whole slices of ourselves we don't, we don't understand. Jesus does, and he sees them, and that fire that he sees is meant to penetrate and purify. It's meant to heal you. You will be made whole. You will be made perfect. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His kingdom rests on a solid foundation that cannot be cracked, shaken, or dismantled. What he builds lasts forever. It will not be toppled. Your future with him is safer and more eternal and more full of delight than you can possibly imagine. It's built on a solid foundation. His voice, verse 15, was like the roar of many waters. All right, as I was going through this vision and trying to think through what these things communicate to us about Jesus, what deeper experience and vision we need about him, this one, for some reason, caught my imagination uh, more than all the other ones. A voice like the roar of many waters. What does that mean? Like, what does that tell us about Jesus' word? We know all kinds of other things about his word, right, through, through the Bible. We know, that, um, we know that he spoke creation into existence. We know that he speaks you back into his family. We know that it's personal and intimate. And yet we just read in verse 10 that it, it blasts through the noise like a trumpet. But what does this tell us? The word picture here, the roar of many waters, it reminds me of standing next to a waterfall where there is a, a powerful noise and a powerful presence next to you, the, the kind of water that can, it cuts through rocks, right? It, it rearranges the earth itself. And yet, when you, even though you're, you're in the midst of something so loud, it's an external noise that brings an internal peace, doesn't it? It's like you can't even talk with your friends who you hiked there with because it's so loud, but it, it's a calming power. It's a calming noise. The decibels are huge, but it produces a calm silence, even a patient endurance. God's voice is like that. The Bible is like that. Sit under the sheer weight of its gravity and its glory. I mean, the very words of God spoken to you and for you. And yet, as you meditate on them, as you let them wash over you, they bring an incredible inner calm, peace that transcends understanding. A voice like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. The seven stars, we're told later in verse 20, are the angels of the seven churches. You may know that in the ancient world, the Romans and Greeks thought that our lives were ordered by the celestial um, planets, the celestial bodies, and that they believed that there were seven of them, right, that organized the universe. Jesus offers a counter image, all right? He, he takes that cultural idea and he reclaims it and he reclaims it for the truth. He, he uses it to reorient his people away from the myths of their age into the truth of his kingdom. Planets don't control anybody, but Jesus controls the planets, right? Planets don't hold the secret to your future, which by the way, is not just an ancient idea, is it? Planets do not hold the secret to your future. Jesus holds your future in his loving hands, his generous hands. Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus cuts right through the nonsense, right through the clouds of confusion and doubt, right, into, right through our own defenses against him even. 
you know, the word there for that kind of sword, it's not like a long fencing sword. It's like a up close and personal dagger, okay? Like the kind of thing that you stab a guy in the guts with as you're looking him in the eyes. Um, and what, I don't know what I love about this, it's kind of a weird image, but what I love about this is that the word of God, it's that intimate, right? It's, it's personal, it requires a personal touch, and he knows us, and, and he reaches us on a guttural level, on a personal, intimate level. He does surgery on us. He's not just lobbing truth grenades from behind the wall, and they're landing at random. He knows you personally, and his word will do work on you personally. Finally, John says, his face was like a sun shining in full strength. John's grasping for the most intense image and physical phenomenon in the natural world, the sun. And he ends this vision by saying the intensity and the presence of Jesus is like the sun at noon in a cloudless sky. I mean, it's heat, it's light, it it will affect you. Even when, when you close your eyes, it gets inside. There is no escape from his presence. So what is the result of an encounter with Jesus at this scale? I mean, John just had a a moment, right? Like, I mean, none of us have experienced what John just experienced. And and what happens to him? Verse 17, when I saw him, again, he saw more. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. What Jesus showed John, this vision, the peak behind the curtain of reality, um, it puts John on his back. It puts everything into perspective. John's circumstances are now not the things that bring him to his knees. The presence of Jesus brings him to his knees. The king of all things put him on the ground. One reason I think that we can get so worried and full of anxiety and fear in life is because we're trying to kind of work out every outcome and avoid every suffering and craft life in this sort of uninterrupted success and and experiences of fun is because we think that we can control all these things. We we think that we can actually make it happen how we want it to happen. And when we think that way, we can't help but live in fear that we'll mess it up or in in anxiety that, that we won't do it the right way. I've heard anxiety described as prayer We're just praying to the wrong person. Anxiety is just praying to ourselves, hoping that we can work out all the circumstances of our lives. This vision of Jesus gives us the freedom from thinking that we have any kind of power like that. We are pinned to the ground in awe and in fear and in reverence after encountering the real and living Jesus. And this is actually what we need this powerlessness, this dependence on the one who actually has all the power. We don't need change in circumstances first. We need to stand in awe and worship of our king. We need to be shocked and bowled over. We need that 3D IMAX image to flatten us because that is reality. And that's the cure for our anxiety and our fear. This is a vision that we need to fall deeper and deeper into. Um, This is a vision for our church. This is a vision for our valley. I think this is a vision for our moment, honestly, in the way the the whole world. But as we close, let me me briefly point out that it is not all um, fear and trembling and, uh, you know, power and put, uh, put you on your back. Jesus actually ends this encounter, as we were praying earlier, in a very tender way. 
Look at verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I, I fell at his feet as though dead. But Jesus laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The same hand that holds the seven stars and the planets that orbit galaxies gently touch John on the shoulder. And he says, don't fear. Don't fear. I know your tribulations are great. I know, I know your troubles are big, but I'm greater and I'm bigger. I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Your entire life is held in by me. I began you. I designed you. I will complete you. I will see you through to the end. I'm with you in everything you experience. Do not fear. John, by the way, you're actually going to die on this little rock out in the Mediterranean. Uh, they're going to leave you here until you die. But your physical death is only a shadow that passes because I have already died and I live forever and I will usher you home. Do not fear. Do not fear. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I own them so they will not own you. Do not fear. Your circumstances may change for the better or the worse, but either way, Jesus wins and you win because you're with him. There will always be things that we wonder about, things that we don't understand, wish were different, want God to change about our circumstances, but in Instead of addressing all that we wonder about and all the trouble that we encounter in life, the revelation gives us something to wonder in instead. All right? It gives us a vision of Jesus so great and powerful, so gentle and gracious, that we get caught up in the wonder and the worship of being with him. A growing vision of Jesus is the fuel that we need to live in patient endurance in a world that is both filled with trouble and filled with his kingdom. We need to see Jesus more. I would encourage you this week to spend 10 to 12 minutes staring at the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 and see what depths you fall through as you encounter him more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this vision that you gave us of your son who reigns. Our lives are full of trouble, but you have given us something better than just addressing the circumstances. You have given us your presence and your power and your purity and your ability to draw us back home to you and change our lives. That no matter what happens to us, it's okay because we're with you. God, we want that kind of peace. We want that kind of steady experience of you. Would you be generous and give it to us? Would you help us encounter you in deeper and deeper ways this morning and this week and this year? We ask these things in your name. Amen.